So we're going to read from God's Word now. Uh, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? Uh, or on your phone, if not, uh, the words will appear behind me as we read. We're in Acts 11 today, just three short verses. Acts 11, verses 27 to 30, and this is God's Word. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So we watched that video just a moment or two ago uh, because we're in the second of the sessions that, we, uh, that Rick kicked off last week, um, going through the, the kind of flow from our all-in strategy, okay? There are kind of three big headline kind of statements that are our vision, right? To be a people going deeper, growing closer, and reaching wider. And then we have flowing from those, the kind of other objectives that you saw on that. And inside those kind of lines, okay, are kind of character traits or qualities of the people who live like that. Last week, uh, Rick was with us and he was speaking on the importance of teaching. And this week, we come to giving. That's right. Your hearts have all just sank, right? It's a setup, right? I know that for as my dad's parting gift, as he sorted out the rota for this part, that he would, of course, give me the week on giving, right? Thanks for that, dad. Just before lockdown struck and the world kind of changed forever, we had my friend Andy Masters with us to speak one week. Andy, who was the speaker here for Catalyst Conference, who leads Lagan Valley Vineyard. And uh, he was there to speak in a series that we were doing at the time. And on that particular day, the focus was on discipleship. So Andy gets up, he introduces himself, talks a bit about his family life and all of that sort of stuff. And then he says, right, this is the first line of his sermon. So today then, we're going to be talking about discipleship. Now, does anybody know how to spell discipleship? And everyone nods and goes, yes, yes, we do. And then he goes, great, it's M-O-N-E-Y. And I'm like... Are you serious, Andy? <laughs> Come on, mate. You're meant to be my friend. What are you doing? And that's how he started his sermon. Now, I'm not going to do that to you guys today, right? I love you too much to make you that uncomfortable for the beginning of this morning's act of worship, right? But one of the things that plays into that is that this area of giving and receiving is not something that we are particularly comfortable with in Northern Ireland, are we? Giving and receiving. It just makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, think about it for a second, okay? From our inability to take compliments, right? Just for a start. Like in Northern Ireland, we prefer to give compliments via abuse, don't we? Like that's how you know you're really in. Like when somebody marries into your family or whatever, you're really nice to them until they're in and then the abuse starts. But actually that's how you know you're loved. Or the other thing that we do, right? The faux humility thing, you know? Where someone says, oh, it's a lovely dress. And you're like, oh, oh this old thing? You know, you only browse the internet for 25 hours before you bought it. Or like, you know, thank you so much. You know, thank you. Dinner was delicious. Oh, it was nothing. You've cooked all day. It wasn't nothing, right? 
or to arguments over who is paying for dinner. I don't know a single kind of wider family that hasn't had an argument in a restaurant over who is paying. And then inevitably somebody does that like wick thing where they slip off and they pay and then comes back and somebody goes, right, we'll pay now. And they go, no, it's taken care of. And everyone goes, you shouldn't have done that. That's too much. And then, you know, it kind of breaks out. It's like that scene with Mrs. Doyle and Father Ted where her and the other lady get into a fight in the coffee shop because over who is going to pay for tea, right? to the cycle of paying for dinners or coffee for each other. Why is it that the second you go to a coffee shop and somebody buys you coffee, that the first thing you will say is, I'll get the next one? You can't help it, can you? Now, I'm saying there's a, gener- there's a generous thing there that's good, but why is it that we can't just accept the gift that somebody else paid for you? And then we get to church and the low-grade shame that falls over all of us when we get to talking about giving. It's even worse, isn't it, that this could be the week where your work colleague or your friend or your family member has finally come to church with you and you walk in and the worship's great and the welcome's great, everything's going great. And then the preacher, somebody like me, gets up and says, this week we're going to be talking about giving and you want the ground to swallow you up, right? And you do that whisper thing, it's not like this every week, right? Giving. It's not a topic that we do particularly well, is it? And it seems to me that we're way more embarrassed, way more awkward about it than Jesus ever was. 11 of Jesus' 38 parables were on the topic of money. One in four sermons were on money. Could you imagine if you came here and one in four weeks we talked about money, right? You wouldn't be here very long, would you? We're way more awkward about it than Jesus ever was. And so today we land in this passage in Acts 11, which is kind of following on from where Rick was last week, right? A church thrust into going deeper, growing closer, reaching wider through the importance of teaching. And so how are we more like an all-in church, more like ourselves through the importance of giving? That's the question that we're asking today. So these three short verses land us in an interesting part, right, in the Acts narrative. And it makes me think of my childhood and the North Coast, okay? Right, go with me for a second here, okay? Because childhoods for us, uh, in many ways as kids growing up, going to Port Stewart Prom or really anywhere on the North Coast in July was a complete nightmare, right? We'd be in the house and dad and mom would say, we're going to go for an ice cream. We'll go to Port Stewart Prom. So you would park and you'd be making your way towards the ice cream shop, except dad would be stopped every five steps by what seemingly was an endless supply of other Presbyterian ministers that were also on the North Coast in July. So you'd be like, we're going for ice cream. Dad has stopped again and again and again until eventually you were like, just sack it, leave dad behind. We're going to Morelli's, right? And we'd all go for our Morelli's. Dad would catch up about three hours later. And I say that, right? Because Antioch, where we find ourselves today, was like that. Antioch was like that. It was one of the places of great cultural and trade crossroads of the ancient world. And he writes said this, once you were in Antioch, you could guarantee that half the people who traveled anywhere would sooner or later come by. There it is, Port Stewart Prom on a July evening. It's a thriving place. It's a place where people from every part of the empire came to travel through. And right in this moment, the message of Jesus is spreading rapidly. 
As Rick talked about last week, Barnabas can see people coming to faith, but with no real framework for that faith. So he brings Paul to Antioch to teach them. And he does, and they have this incredibly fruitful time, right? It's, it's more or less a honeymoon period where there's nothing bad. Everyone's deepening in their faith. They're growing. Stuff's happening. It's an incredible time, right? Everything is going great. And then the prophecy comes that there's going to be a famine. Something is going to happen elsewhere. And the question is, what will they do? And I say that today because it's obvious to me that something has happened in our world. Not just here, not just this church, but every church to every person, hasn't it? And the question is right now, how will we respond? Much like the question came for them, it comes for us too. We went with a strategy called all in. That's bold, by the way. To be all in on anything is bold. And how will we be an all in people in the days ahead? How can we learn from the Acts Church? Well, I would love us to think today about how we can do that in two ways, in response and in vision. We might be giving in response. We might be giving in vision. Let's just read those verses again. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So last week, right, we left off with the young church being deepened in their faith as Paul teaches them. But this week, our passage starts with Agabus delivering a prophecy. Now, Agabus is one of those people that when you're in ministry and you see them coming, you're like, oh no, it's Agabus, right? Because he appears a couple of times in the, in the Acts narrative and both of those times he arrives with a rather gloomy prophecy about how the world is going to be, right? He arrives at times when stuff is good and what he has to say is always, oh no, things are going to get worse, right? So he's one of those people. And he, he arrives, he tells them that there's going to be a severe famine over the land and historically this did happen, okay? F.F. Bruce says this period was marked by a succession of bad harvests and serious famines in various parts of the empire, right? So what he says is going to happen, it happens, right? This was a time marked with famine and unrest, and this young church is faced with the news that elsewhere in the empire, some other part of the church that they have just belonged to, by the way, is very likely going to suffer worse than them. What are they going to do about it? And it's obvious from what we're reading that Luke, who wrote the book of the Acts, right, he's more concerned with the response of the people than he is with the prophecy of Agabus, right? Like he's not describing whether or not the prophecy was accurate or the trustworthiness of the prophet or anything like that. He doesn't discuss any of that. What he wants us to see is how the church responds. And that's the thing, isn't it, right? We're the church here today. And so the Holy Spirit is at work today, speaking to us about the pain and the suffering of other people. This is one of our birthmarks. This is part of our inheritance as the people of God, that we gather to worship a God who is speaking to us about the world that is not all it could be. Just about every compassion ministry and initiative that has happened in this church has happened because at some point God has spoken to someone about something in our world. Because that's what he does and that's who we are. 
We are those who from the beginning have got ourselves caught up in the stuff that is destroying life on the earth. We are those who God is speaking to, calling to join him in his work of making it all new. And so giving really is about response. Giving is about response. And this young church, right, it rushes out to meet the needs of others. Sometimes I think, you know, about how so much of the beauty that we find in our world happens because of difficult things. The, the beauty of, of generous giving happens in response to suffering, doesn't it? Fortitude and strength to face the challenges of ill health or disappointments, forgiveness and hurt, generosity in times of little compassion and suffering. Some of the most beautiful things about humanity are stirred in some of the most difficult things in our lives. And I say that because what I find interesting is that their first thought is not for themselves. Verse 28, Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world, right? So it's going to come there too. It's not just going to be in Judea. It's going to happen there. And yet, they don't think about what they are going to do. Do they? How are we going to survive? How are we going to make it through? How will we pull ends meet? When the famine comes for us, right? That's not their first thought. They aren't thinking of their survival. They're thinking, how can we help those who are in a worse position than ourselves? And I wonder, how are we thinking right now? Are we thinking of survival? Or are we thinking about looking outside ourselves? I wonder, as our world continues to open up and we, the church, opens up, what sort of church are we going to be in the days that are ahead? What sort of church are we becoming in these days? Less expectant or more hopeful? Fearful or faith-filled? Inward-looking or outward-facing? Safety-first or a generous people? The Acts Church first response was to look outside themselves to the needs of others. And so they gave. You know, there's this kind of basic biblical principle to what giving looks like, right? I know that we all like to get into the like percentages and how much and all of that sort of stuff, right? But that's not what the Bible really does at its heart. It has this basic principle that runs through much of the New Testament. And here it is, right? Your ability on one hand, others' needs on the other. You have your ability on one hand and you have other people's needs on the other. And generosity is what makes up the space between the two. You see, the New Testament is littered with passages and testimony of how the church gave, right? But just, let's just pick one example, right? 2 Corinthians 8.3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. See, that's that your ability part. And that happens again and again and again. The New Testament church demonstrates that. It means to look at yourselves and ask honestly, what can I do? We're not talking about figures or percentages here. That's not what it's about. It's your ability, and only you can know that. You have your ability on one hand. But also, it's about the needs of the world in which we live. Again, lots of passages. Let's just look at those famous words from Acts 2, 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Or again, just a little further on, Acts 4 and 35. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the seals and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Giving really at the heart. Giving as response. Giving is that which bridges the gap between our ability and others' needs. And that's the ACTS model of response, right? And one of the incredible things about it is not just what they give, but it's the age-old parent line. It's how they did it, right? It's not just what they did, it's how they did it. This is what it says. The disciples, as each one was able, there's that part, ability, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters. There's the needs. Living in Judea. Notice what is not here. Grudging, begrudging, grumbling, and debate. Here's the thing, right? It would have been easy to grumble too. Why do I say that? I say that because uh, if you remember back uh, last week and in other parts of bits that we've been speaking on this year, right, if you think back to Acts 1 and 2 to the church in Jerusalem, right, it's the same church that the Bible tells us sold possessions and property to give to the needy. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're seeking to stay out of poverty, repeatedly selling your possessions and property to give to those who are in need is not a great strategy to stay out of poverty, is it? I mean, if you sell everything you have repeatedly, you're going to be repeatedly in poverty. But that's what they do. And so if you're giving to them, and let's be honest about it, right? It's like sometimes we like to think about books like the book of Acts and think, well, it would have been easier to give back then. Of course it wouldn't. Giving is hard in every generation. And if you're them, then you're thinking, well, why would I give to them? They're just going to give it away anyway. They'll just end up back in the same place again. Why would I give to them? Why? Well, stewardship was never a question to the church in Antioch. They didn't begrudge it. They gave gladly. They responded. Why? Because they understood that it was who they were. Right at the end of verse 26 that Rick read last week, it said this. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This was the first place that the church, us, got called what we now call ourselves. And here's the thing, right? It wasn't a badge of honor then, like lots of us wear it as a badge of honor now. It was a nickname. They were called it as a nickname, much like the Methodists were called the Methodists because opponents of Wesley saw the methodical way that they did Bible study and prayer, so they nicknamed them Methodists, and it stuck, right? But the thing with nicknames is very often they speak a lot about the popular perception of what is important to people. And in their case, we know from the nickname that others chose for them, right? Remember it. People called them it because of what they saw. It was Christ. It was the Messiah. It was the anointed one. And they were called that because they were living and speaking and acting in such a way that they came to be known as the king's people, Christians. They were known as the king's people precisely because of who their king was. Jesus. And so at the deepest level, like their king, the greatest kind of example of what it means to be all in, they gave themselves in love to one another and to all who were in need. They were given the name because in large part, because of how they gave. And when you look at historians from that period of time, again and again and again and again, they talk about how the Christians loved one another because of how they give. 
How did we, the church today, go so wrong as to lose that name's meaning? We had a Christian theologian with us at Central a little while ago talking about areas related to politics. And his line on the call, which was breathtaking to all of us that were listening, was, globally, the word Christian is now largely meaningless. Christian politicians, Christian countries, Christian nations, Christian presidents, and so on and so on and so on and so on, don't live anything like the king whose name we bear. You know what I think about the New Testament Testament narrative on money is that it's not really anything to do with money. New Testament narrative about money doesn't really have anything to do about money. It's really not about giving. It's much more about generosity. It's much more about being generous, right? And we all know that giving and generosity, they're not the same things, are they? They are nowhere near the same things. Giving is mechanical. Generosity is about the heart. It's really not about money, right? But about how our money and resources flow to and from that which has got our heart. In the end of the day, we can give and not be generous. We can help and not be generous of heart. We can accommodate and not be generous of spirit. The New Testament narrative about giving is not about giving. It's about generosity, isn't it? I truly believe that for us to be an all-in church in the moment that we're in and into the days that we are heading into, then we need to be a generous church. And that starts with us being generous in response. The Acts Church was generous in response, but secondly, it was generous in vision. As usual, the Sunday Times published its annual rich list. I would not encourage you to read it because you will only finish depressed, right? So they published their rich list as always for this year. And as part of that, now there is a section on giving, if you've ever read it. So there's like all the very rich people and then there's the part that talks about how much people give, right? And this year, Marcus Rashford, Manchester United footballer, became the youngest person ever at 23 to top the giving list. He has a net worth of 16 million quid, and he gave in the last year 20 million quid. That is 125% of his net worth. He gave way more than he's worth. For reference, the next nearest, Lord Sainsbury, who is, by the way, worth 512 million quid, he gave 44%. Nowhere near. It's astonishing, right? I mean, it's utterly incredible giving and generosity from a young man. Okay, he is still an extraordinarily rich 23-year-old, right? Like, make no mistake. But he stood alone in the UK, way above anybody else. Why? Well, I think we all know why. Because we all watched the news. We all watched his Twitter exchanges with the government of how he turned around their policy to stop free school meals during lockdowns. And it's plainly obvious that he did it because it's deeply personal to him. It's born out of his experience. And therefore, his giving, his working is part of his vision for how the world could be. And that's it, right? Because generosity flows from vision. It flows from your vision of the world. And at the heart of this question of generosity is really a question about vision. We have got to get our vision right. If we're honest with ourselves, 
We give and serve and strive and sacrifice in line with our vision of the world, don't we? I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Ronaldo documentary on the iPlayer, right? But that is somebody that has given and strived and done everything he could since he was a young man to be the greatest player that's ever lived, right? That was his goal in life. And he has been like laser focused throughout his life. He spent millions of pounds just to keep his body fit, right? He has done everything in line with his vision for the world. And that's what we do too, don't we? We give, we serve, we strive, we sacrifice in line with our vision for what the good life is. Whether that's that new kitchen or your home, whether that's your kids and wanting the best for them, whether that's your work, whether that's your gym life. As Tim Keller wrote, money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. We give in line with our vision but not just our money, with our whole lives. And if we're honest, we do it generously, don't we? And so too did the Acts Church. It just so happened that their vision was very different than what ours normally is. Verse 29 struck me. This is what it says. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Brothers. That word, brothers. And it's not just here, right? It's throughout the New Testament narratives on giving, brothers. And what we have to get here, right, is that this is a newly converted church from the Greek world, right? This is a massive deal. What's going on in Acts 11, what it's describing is a massive deal. We're not just talking about Jewish people or sort of on the fringes Jewish people. We're not just talking about Gentile people. We're talking about Greek people. The gospel is now going out and across some of the most significant divides of the world of that time. We know how Jews looked upon them. They were pagans. They were outsiders. They were as far apart as it's possible to be. And yet their lives are transformed. They join the church and there is no more us versus them. There are only people in need. There are only brothers. You see, generosity flows from our vision. Their vision had been so totally transformed by the power of Jesus that they saw the world differently. And over the years here at Car Money, as we talked about the gift of giving, and this church is so generously given to projects here and far, far, far afield, right? We often talked about giving your time, talents, and energy, right? We use that line again. You give of your time, your talents, and your energy. Here's the thing. We only give our time, talents, and energy to things that have got our heart, don't we? Time and talents and energy. Those are all valuable, precious things. And we only give those to things that we have a vision for, don't we? And generosity in vision, if we're going to get on board with what the Acts example was, right? It happens in three ways. It's up and it's in and it's out. Vision has to flow up and in and out. The first one of those is up, okay? Hebrews 13 says this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you and never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. We were just singing that in the first worship set, weren't we? About God's faithfulness and how our security in him goes against the fear that we feel in the world, right? And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus and some of the more famous passages in the Bible, right? He talks about not storing up treasures on earth. And then in the very next section, his first words are, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. 
What is it about how our resources and our worry, our resources and our fear belong together so much of the time, don't they? I think we can all relate to how worried we get when it comes to our resources. What is it about our wealth that makes us so worried? In the early years of our marriage, Joy took a place on a PGCE course. We were delighted. She had been doing classroom assisting. She'd eventually reached the point where it's like, I could do this job. Why do I not just become a teacher and do that job? So she got on a PGCE. That was great, cause for celebration. Until, as the person who runs the finances, I'm like, great, that means a year without pay, right? So I'm stressing about a year without pay. And I don't know why, but in my head, I was like, she'll come to the end of the year, and then, great, a salary will return, except... It didn't return because you have July and August where she still didn't work. And then I was like, great, we'll get to September. Somebody will employ her. Nope, nobody employed her. September, October, November, December, and then she got a maternity cover in January. And those four months were some of the more anxious months of our lives as we stressed about how on earth we were going to make ends meet. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all want security, don't we? We all want to be comfortable, don't we? And so very often, we are generous only out of the small pot in our lives that doesn't cost us anything to give. We're generous out of the dregs. We're generous to ourselves and our family and the things we're passionate about from the big pot, but we're generous to the other stuff out of the small pot aren't we? But the New Testament church knew something. It knew the joy of generosity. It knew that it wasn't just what generosity did for those in need, but what it did for those who gave. That's why as we talk about that church, right, none of us would argue at all as we talked last week about the importance of teaching. We all nod and go, yep, I can see that teaching was important. Giving was every bit as important. Giving was every bit as important for them, discipleship truly was spelled M-O-N-E-Y because it broke the power of one of the most significant things in our life, money. Kent Hughes wrote this, and I love it. Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. To live out as a people of generosity is to say that money does not have control of my life. It has to impact our relationship with God, how we trust him, how we follow him, how we believe that we have enough. Generosity and vision has to flow up. But secondly, it has to flow in. When I was growing up in Waterloo Gardens, just down the Antrim Road, I used to spend significant time listening to my dad talk on the phone in his study, right? And every phone call would feature the same word. Every call, I would hear the word brother. And whether he was laughing or he was arguing or there was quite clearly a heated debate going on in the other room, the word brother would appear again and again to the point where one day, one summer, I remember saying to my mom, mom, how does dad have all these brothers that I've never met, right? Like deeply confused. Who are all these brothers? Where are they all, right? To which point they describe, well, no, that, that's not, you don't quite understand, son, right? Because whether these were people dad liked or he didn't like, whether these were people for whom they agreed or they disagreed, or they just had a blazing riot presbytery on Tuesday night, for him, they were always brothers. Brothers. And that word brother that we looked at earlier, that's the thing. 
See, whether people were inside the church, as part of the family of the church, or they were outsiders on their way in, or nominally, or even on their way out, the early church treated people as brothers. And to them, that was done primarily through one thing, hospitality. It wasn't called ministries like we have now. It was just hospitality. That's what you see described again and again and again of the New Testament church. You know, the word for hospitality is the word that we get hospital from. It means just that, a space created for people to be seen, to be heard, and to be walked back into wholeness. Where lepers were no longer left out on the streets to beg. Where in plagues people were fed and the sick were treated. Where people from the cultural far side of the world were welcomed around the table. And I want to say that today because I believe that one of the most significant ways that our generosity and vision is changed in terms of how we see the community, right? Is how we exercise hospitality. I believe that a generous people are people of hospitality, that we would not become people who want to give but keep our distance from other people, right? Like outsource our compassion. If I just give a few quid here, it means I don't have to look at it, right? He wouldn't just treat people with dignity at a distance, but he would rather get our hands dirty, open our homes, get involved in people's mess, and practice hospitality. You know what? Whenever we think about the resources, when we think about that time, talent, and energy that we give, I truly believe that what we do with our homes is one of the most significant resources that we have in these days. We've been working with a Syrian refugee in our family, or in our church, sorry. It's been an incredible journey. They've now got leave to remain. They've started working. They're in schools. They have a home. It's been incredible watching these people literally show up out the back of an HGV on a Sunday with nothing, come into a place of dignity and hope and just a different view of the world. It's been an incredible journey. And Joy and I have wrestled so much, right, with having them come to our home. We keep wanting them to come to our home. And then there's almost this shame that comes over it, knowing what they live in versus what most of us live in here in the Western world, right? We don't have loads. We just have a normal house. But compared to what they have, it's like a world away. And so we were really ashamed of that for so long. And then this thing started happening. And this was it. They kept relentlessly inviting us to their home. And so they, because of their culture, because they see us as their family, they see us as brothers, I will get a text and it will say, David, my brother, you come to our house for dinner on Wednesday. Now, it's a nightmare because time clearly doesn't matter to people from that culture. But we get invited. They cook everything that they know. I mean, it's incredible, right? They go the whole hog. It's absolutely astonishing. They open their home. They practice hospitality. And it has been the most life-giving thing. We've got to learn to practice hospitality if we are going to be a provocative people in this age. Leslie Newbegin, one of the best Presbyterians, said this. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. And I really believe that in an increasingly detached world that one of the ways we do that is through hospitality. And that comes for all of us, by the way. Because Dan Black's great, right? And the compassion ministry of this church is great. But it is not his responsibility. It is ours. We need to know that there's a danger that whenever it comes to things like compassion ministry in a church like this, that we think the church does that, not I 
do that. We are to be a people of hospitality because we are generous in a vision that flows into our community. And finally, the vision flows out. You know, the people of the early church embodied a people whose lives were captivated by a different vision of the world. They came to see the world completely different because of their faith in Jesus. Not like ours, where so much of our world is about me, isn't it? We make it about us. It's my way, my security, my needs, what I can get out of the world in which we live, where we say things like, you know what, money doesn't make you happy, but then some other voice says, yeah, but the things you buy, they do make you happy, don't they, right? A world where if we're honest, wealth and what it buys has power over all of us in big ways and small, doesn't it? And we read earlier on from Matthew 6, and in it Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know what? In some of your Bibles, if they're older ones, they will have the word mammon instead of money, right? Mammon was the depiction of wealth. It was an influence. Actually, it was perceived as a god. And here's why I say it today. Because we are all wealthy, relatively speaking, aren't we? We're all comfortable. In the way in which our world works, we are all comfortable people, by and large. And going after mammon, money, wealth, was the only thing that Jesus said we couldn't have and still have him. It was the only thing he said that we couldn't have and still have him. Right? Jesus says lots about other things. Sexuality, ambition, power, unforgiveness, anger, sin, so on, so on, so on. But mammon was the only thing Jesus said we couldn't have in him. And generosity is a vision that has to change the way we see the world and what we have. A number of years ago, someone from this congregation uh, they approached me because it was coming up to Christmas and they knew that I was close to someone in this church who was going through a particularly difficult time. And as I said, it was coming up to that Christmas season of the year and they came, they came one Sunday actually after church and they said, hey Dave, you know, I'd really like to help them. What can we do? So I, I kind of talked through some of the practical things that could maybe be a help to them at this particular time of year. And then they said this, you see, we've talked about it as a family, us and the kids. And we want to take the money that we would be spending on ourselves this Christmas and give it to somebody else. We thought that there would be people who would need it more than us. And that's it, isn't it? That's a different vision of the world. That's where the vision of Christ has got above, high and above, the vision of Christmas that we all have. I mean, coming down on Christmas morning to no presents, sending your kids back to school in January to other kids asking, what did you get for Christmas? And them saying, nothing, we give all our money away. Like, that is a big deal, isn't it? But not to them. Because their vision had changed. The vision had flowed up and in, and now the vision was flowing out. They saw the world another way, and it blew me away. This is about vision, a vision of how generosity flows up into how we ourselves relate to God, flows into the community that we're a part of, inclusive of people, brothers, how we practice hospitality and flows out to how we see the world in which we live. A vision is truly what we can give our time and our talents and our energy to. 
Just as I wrap up this morning and I ask Lauren and Shane and Sarah to come back and lead us in worship. I just want to say that an all-in people is a generous people. That we are generous in response and generous in our vision. And we have a moment right now, right, as the world opens up. And I believe, as so many of you believe and are excited about getting going for the cause of Jesus again in our days, right? It's not just in our activity, though. It will be in our generosity. The future church in Newton Abbey is a generous one. And a generous church is an all-in church. In 125 A.D., Aristides, who was a philosopher, ended up up before the Roman Emperor Hadrian uh, giving testimony about the Christians. And this is what he said. And they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. That's that ability and other thing, isn't it? And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and they rejoice over him as a very brother. There's that hospitality part. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. There's the vision part. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is in you people. And there is something divine in the midst of them. There's what happens. There's how the world sees us. If we truly become a people of provocative generosity in our time. That's it. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. That's what's possible. And I just want to pray this morning. Before I hand over to the guys to lead us in worship and close our praise. And I want to pray for two things today. And the first is response. You know, coming to a big place like this, it's really easy to kind of outsource our compassion to other people, right? Or just kind of give it away. I just give money, makes me feel better. Somebody else does it. It's not for me to do. Actually, it's for all of us to do. And I really believe in this next season of life that, that we are to be a people of generosity. It means that we are a people of hospitality. Crosses social and cultural boundaries. Invites people into our home, well, our, our back gardens at the minute, probably, right? But that you might learn to be, and we might learn to be a people of generosity, not just with our money, but with whatever we have. Our resources, right? Our friendship, our families, our homes, our work, our skills, our gifts, our talents, our passions. And I want to pray that God might stir that in us today. But secondly, I want to pray that God might stir us to have a different vision of the world. Maybe this is the moment where we need to admit to ourselves that money has way more hold over me than I'd like to admit. Maybe it's your social media browsing, the stuff that you spend your time looking at. Maybe it's if you really start to think about it, the stuff that really has your heart. The stuff that really you're working towards. The stuff that really you want. And if you're honest, it's not got anything to do with God's vision of the world. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house or a nice car or any of that sort of thing. Please hear that in me this morning. But we need to see the world a different way because money has got a hold of just about everyone. Jesus knew that. That's why he spoke the way he did. And his words still echo in us today. I want to pray for God to renew that vision in us today. 
So wherever you are this morning, if God has been speaking or one of those two things resonates with you, I wonder if just where you are, you might hold your hands out before you as I pray. There's nothing special about it. It's just a sign that, Lord, I want to receive. Thank you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. God, I ask you to come now. And God, I ask you to move, to blow through the caverns of our souls, to poke and provoke, Lord, even on sore spots, even in bits that we don't want to admit to ourselves today. Holy Spirit, come and speak and challenge and comfort in the way that only you can. God, I want to ask you today to come to us all and to provoke in us a heart for hospitality, to be generous people in our hospitality, to see all of the resources that we have, our family life, that we wouldn't be ashamed, that it wouldn't be like, I just need to get my family sorted before I can invite anybody else into my mess. Our homes that we might feel, well, I just need to get that new kitchen and then we can start hosting people. Our passions and our gifts and our skills and our talents, that we wouldn't just see money as the only resource that we have. You would help us to look holistically at our lives and say, Lord, I want to be an all-in person. So I want to be a person of generous, provocative hospitality in these days, that I might invite people into my life so that they might invite you into their lives. And God, I want to pray today that you might change up our vision. Just as we confess in these moments, that money probably has more hold over us than we like to admit. God, we say this morning that our security is not in how good the bank balance looks, but our security and our hope is in you, is in your resources, infinite one, abundant one, creator God who set all of this in motion. Help us to be a people of generosity. Help us to see that it flows up to how we encounter you, flows into how we see the community, flows out to how we see the world. Come and move in us today, we pray. Give us eyes to see the world the way you do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.